Okay, we ready to go, Reg? All set? Okay. I am. Yeah, are you? Yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> a little edgy today, aren't you? Uh, keep that. That's always good. A little creative tension is always good for the show, right? Okay, here we go. Um, put it in the book here. T- episode 296, inching closer to 300. I'll um, I'll give you the uh, the three S's. I'll give you the countdown. Give me the music. I'll give you a podcast. It's... You know, that's a pretty simple format, right? Okay, let's go. I'm ready. I'm a little sad today, but what I want to talk about, another childhood hero gone. But uh, we will carry on. All right, here we go. Ready? Star, smile, strong. Especially today. Okay, here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. Of course, we're there. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast, but more importantly, get out there and spread the word, send a link, send a message, tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion and that little extra effort you put in all the time is extremely appreciated. If you like what you hear, don't forget, you go to WGNRadio.com, you hit the prompt for the podcast section, you get into that podcast section, you'll see a prompt for this podcast, hit that, and you will find all, or a good, a great majority, I would hope, of previous podcasts that we've been doing here now. For almost six years. Every week. I think in that vault there should be at least 295. Wow. If that's true, then welcome to episode 296. Sad news today. Sad time. Well, not sad. Uh, celebration, but uh, certainly a, a, a little tinge of of sadness. Bittersweet, if you will. Uh, I guess as the older that 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 we get individually, um, we then experience people that are older than us passing away. It's one of the great ironies and the. Advantages and disadvantages, right, of getting old. We we get older, and, and then those who are older than us, for the most part, um, pass away, and we have to experience that. And we experience this great sadness, especially with people that um, meant something to us, not only uh, parents or f- family members or, or close friends, but um, but certainly people that we encounter both in person or just through television or radio or movies or whoever. There are people that, uh, that make a connection with us. And being someone like me, who uh, was raised on television, many of my best friends early on in my life, in many ways, were people that I saw on the television. I was an only child, so I didn't have any brothers and sisters around, and I certainly had a good group of uh, you know friends in the neighborhood. But uh, you know, especially when you're a little kid, uh, you know, once the streetlights come on, you know, it's time to go in in the summer and in the, in the winter, even earlier, gets darker earlier, and you're in you know doing homework and things like that. But uh, so uh, my my friends, my my companions, many times. We're on television, and uh, if you grew up in the 
70s in, uh, in the Chicago area, in the late 60s, mid to late 60s and early 70s, and even into the 80s, it was a unique time uh, on television because the Chicago market was filled with and was a national leader in children's programming. In the 60s and 70s, that's when children's programming uh, really began to, uh, to mature and to get a lot of airtime. Uh, there was always cartoon shows. And from the earliest days of television, there were, car- there were children's programs, right? Captain Kangaroo and um, Howdy Doody. A lot of puppets. <laughs> a lot of puppets. Kukla, Fran, and Ollie. A lot of shows. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't just here in Chicago, but certainly Chicago played a, a major role. It was, a, it was not only a major media market, uh, and one of the country's biggest cities, but um, but also uh, just a lot of trailblazing television went on here uh, aimed at children. As I said, nationally there were shows, but Chicago had uh, an, inordin- an inordinate amount of local programming. Not too many stations would dedicate as much time as Chicago uh, local stations did to children's programming. One reason was because it got good ratings. Shows like uh, Bozo Circus and Ray Rayner and Garfield Goose and Friends that dominated the uh, the morning and afternoon, at least lunchtime, uh, time slots uh, on WGN television uh, proved to be hugely successful. Uh, with ratings and advertising and viewership. If you were raised, you know, if you were a kid in Chicago in the 60s and 70s, you watched Ray Rayner in the morning. You watched Garfield Goose. And you watched Bozo if you were able to, if you went home for lunch. I didn't get to watch Bozo all that much because I, uh, I, I used to stay at school. I used to eat lunch at school, so I wasn't able to go home. So I didn't see Bozo as much as I would have liked. A lot of kids did because they went home for lunch. Could you imagine that? Kids were allowed to go home for lunch. And and many of them walked home. There was no such thing as as pickups. I mean, I I live near a school and you know, you if you don't time it right, you you get an early start on your day and you forget because it's it's not really in my in my mindset. Uh, I mean, you get you you go down a street here, a couple of side streets, and there's just a line of SUVs and cars in the drop-off lane. Okay, that's a whole different world to me. I know nothing of drop-off lanes. I don't know what time drop-off lanes start. I know nothing. Don't have any children, so that is not on my radar screen at all. But it, until. I mistakenly go down uh, a couple of side streets where the school is, and then I realize that I'm not in line for the stop sign. I'm in line for the drop-off, yet I have nothing to drop off. <laughs> so when I do remember, I, I, I'm, I go out of my way. I make a, a different turn and go in the opposite direction because, my gosh, the drop-off line is, uh, there, there's quite a whole little mini world going on there. There's rules, there's, there's regulars. Wow, don't even, don't get involved in that. You, you don't, you don't want to get into that world by mistake because, you know, you're going you're gonna to get in trouble. People are going to look at you sideways if you don't know exactly what you're doing and why you're there. That's happened to me a couple of times. Oof. But yeah, we used to, a lot of kids who lived close to home and their parents were, their moms at that time in the 70s, uh, most moms did not have a job. Mine did. My mom worked. She always enjoyed working. So that's why I, I uh, had lunch and uh, at school. But a lot of kids went home and they were, think about this. They, not only did they, not only were they trusted to go home for an hour, we had, you know, lunch was from 12 to 1. And uh, at least when I remember, I remember when I was in grammar school, it was an it was an hour, early part of grammar school. I think later than they they shortened it a little, 
but uh, but it may still may have been an hour. But uh, yeah, I mean, kids were were allowed to to leave the school on their own. They walked home. There was no supervision. The school didn't send you know vans or or buses and drop kids off. There was no pick up and drop off line. Kids just walked, went home, had lunch, ate, and came back to school on time. Could you imagine that? Could that even happen? I don't know. Does that happen today? I I, I don't think so. Kids are carted around or, or they're not trusted. I don't know. We just, they said, hey, you know, you go to lunch, you come home, come back by one o'clock. And everybody did it. I don't know. It wasn't that hard. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Chicago was definitely a hotbed of, um, of children's programming. You know, it kind of started to, uh, you know, with Sesame Street and things like that on, uh, on PBS and public television, the electric company. But as I said, children's programming goes way back in the early days of television. But locally, Chicago was certainly a leader. And as I'm sure you you probably know, uh, some of these shows like, uh, you know, Captain Kangaroo or Howdy Doody or Kukla Fran and Alley, those were national shows. They were on everywhere. And even Bozo Circus uh, was syndicated in that uh, Chicago may have had the most famous Bozo and the most popular, famous Bozo Circus show in the country. Uh, but uh, there were various Bozo shows all around the country that were uh, that were syndicated. Now, in today's world, most likely, with how popular the Bozo show was that it originated here in Chicago with Bob Bell and Floyd Brown and Ray Rayner and, um, and uh, Ned Locke, most likely in today's world, the way television works today, that show was so popular. It was the Oprah Winfrey of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the 60s and 70s. That show was so popular that I'm sure that that bozo, they, there wouldn't have been a series of local bozos in many different cities. I think they just would have said, you know what, this is the best bozo, this is the, the most popular bozo, and we're just going to syndicate this one all around the country. I bet you that's what, have, what would have happened in today's world, in today's market. But back then, every city had their own bozo, but uh, few were as popular. And you've heard the stories, I'm sure, that there were you know eight to nine year waiting lists for tickets. There were free tickets; you didn't have to pay for them. But um, you know, even though uh, Mr. Ned would always talk about the cast of of thousands. Uh, there was probably only a couple hundred in the in the WGN studio, so tickets were a rarity. And uh, I mean, back in those more naive days, I mean, I don't know if people used connections. I'm sure they did, but most people just played by the rules. You know, it was it was a it was a snail mail world. So it was most people just played by the rules. Once again, uh, they said. Here's how you get tickets. You, you send, a, you send a, a, an envelope, uh, you send a letter, and we'll send you tickets. And that's what people did. Nowadays, everybody's got bots, and you know everybody's calling in favors and, and all that. Back then, people just said, okay, what do I do? Okay, I have, oh, I have to wait eight years? Okay, I'll wait eight years. <laughs> that's what people did. <laughs> and you may have heard the stories, too, that, that, that the waiting list for Bozo Circus was so long, eight to nine years for tickets, that before people had a child, they knew they were going to have a child. And, and kudos to these parents for thinking ahead. But they would send in for Bozo tickets before the child was even born, knowing that by the time they were eight or nine, they would get the tickets and the kids would want to go. <laughs> So Chicago was certainly a, a trailblazing um, and a magnet for for children's programming. As I said, the people like uh, Ray Rayner and uh, Fraser Thomas and Garfield Goose and um, and Bozo Circus were uh, and still remain uh, the most famous children's television shows probably in in Chicago TV history, but. I would add another show to that, a show that may not be as um, as celebrated or as even remembered 
as uh, as Bozo or Ray Rayner or Fraser Thomas. But in my view, every bit is good. In many ways, much more creative and entertaining, dare I say. I know this may be sacrilegious to some people to say that there was a show that that may have been better than Bozo Circus or Ray Rayner or Garfield Goose. But I am never one to shy away from controversy. And in my world, I would have to say, in terms of my own excitement and anticipation to watch this show every day, and the influence it had on, excuse me, had on me, Growing up and even into, into my later life, I would have to say I have the utmost respect for and I have met and, and, and interviewed many of those people. Um, you know, I'm Bozo and Ray Rayner and Garfield Goose and Fraser Thomas. I've, I've had interactions and, and with all of those people in my life and career. I've been, I've been fortunate there. And so as much as I respect them and as much as they created some amazing memories, as they did for anybody that lived in the Chicago area during that era, I would still have to say that if you asked me what was my favorite kid show growing up, I, as I said, I know this may be sacrilegious, but I'm going to have to say it anyway because it's true, and I'm always truthful with you guys. My favorite was not Bozo Circus. My favorite was not Ray Rayner and Friends. My favorite was not Garfield Goose and Friends. My favorite was the BJ and Dirty Dragon show starring Bill Jackson. And there may be some of you who have never heard of Bill Jackson or of BJ and Dirty Dragon. And that is the great disservice. Because in that same time period of the late 60s and throughout the 70s and then even into the 80s, where then he went on ABC, locally here in Chicago, Channel 7, and had another show that ran for many years called The Giggle Snort Hotel, starring Bill Jackson, this entertainer, this performer, this very talented man uh, had a successful run in Chicago children's television, starting with, most prominently at least, he had some other shows in some other cities, but he came to Chicago and uh, on Channel 32, WFLD, once again, you know, the other local stations seeing how popular these kid these kids or kid oriented shows were they were like well how do we get one and so everybody wanted to compete with WGN and bill jackson created um cartoon town with the postman of dirty dragon the the main you know the main the main character that he interacted with but then, of course, there were other characters, and and Bill Jackson, who is known as BJ, was was the mayor of Cartoon Town, and it was populated by a group of interesting little characters who were puppets that 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 uh, Jackson created. In many ways, Bill Jackson was like Jim Henson in terms of creating his own puppets, voicing these puppets, um, and creating this, this, um, this alternate universe that was there to entertain children, to bond with children, but also to inform children and to teach children. Not as much as Sesame Street did with Jim Henson, and the Muppets. But if you remember, if you know the, the history of Jim Henson, Jim, Hen- Jim Henson started as a puppeteer, you know, the same way on, on different TV and different stations around the country, local as well as national, 
Uh, but the Muppets were there to entertain. They weren't necessarily teaching puppets. They they gained that that layer, that facet to them when they were got associated with Sesame Street, and that certainly rose, uh, you know, elevated their their prominence. Uh, but they weren't necessarily there to just be, you know, teaching tools. The original Muppets had a, a, an edge to them, and as, and we saw that later on when they created the Muppet Show, which was one of the most successful shows in syndication in the uh, in the mid to late seventies. And that that had it was it was corny, but there was also some some little edgy humor there, and some of those puppets were very edgy. Um, so Jim Henson had definitely uh, was was kind of working on a couple of levels, just like those those classic Warner Brothers cartoons. And 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 Bill Jackson with 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 BJ and Dirty Dragon and Cartoon Town and Giggle Snort Hotel, um, it wasn't necessarily overt teaching. It wasn't like A B C D one two three four like Sesame Street did, but there was there was just a um, an overall interesting and appealing um, vibe to the show. And uh, it was funny and it was silly, but my gosh, Bill Jackson was so talented and so creative uh, as he was a puppeteer, he was an artist, he was a sculptor, and we know he was a sculptor because almost every episode featured a big lovable lump of clay that started like this on a pedestal, this big lump of gray clay and it was masterful within two or three or four minutes bill jackson would mold this lump of clay which he affectionately named the blob and he had this voice that was completely un (laughs) undecipherable I really do. I really do. <laughs> Those are some of my first impressions. Was was blob. That's how I realized I could do impressions. Thanks to Bill Jackson. But he would carve this this lump of clay, this gray clay, and turn blob into a variety of things. And all he would use was this uh, was this was this wooden stick to mold and shape blob into it and then he had a series of of cardboard eyes and and smiles or different kind of expressions that he would put into the face that he created and in a big a hand sometimes big clump of clay shaped like a hand and and put a wig on him and blob what do you want to be today blob oh what's wrong blob you look sad <laughs> and then he got excited he goes i really do i really do <laughs> oh my gosh um, and then, uh, Bill, you say, well, Jim, well, what was this great impact or this great influence he had on you? Well, not only did I begin to do voices, and Bill Jackson did many of the voices for the puppets uh, on the show, like Mother Plumtree and Old Professor and Wally and Weird and the Thumb Twangers, who were a, were a group uh, or a band of um, a singing group. Of birds, I'm not sure what kind of birds the thumb twangers were, but they always sang, um, you know, kind of country songs. They used to play, uh, you know, a lot of the top forty songs. I remember hearing uh, "Looking Out My Back Door" because of the of watching. I didn't even know what Creedence Clearwater Revival was, but I knew I liked that song because I heard it on BJ and Dirty Dragon. As Bill Jackson drew to it, he would draw to different pictures. He was he was a, a such a a, a talented uh, illustrator and uh, and cartoonist and artist, and he would once again within a matter of minutes, he would create these amazing drawings with just a marker and and a little easel. And one of and one of the things he did, and you could send in to him, is that you would send in what you wanted to be when you grew up. 
and you would send your initials. So in my case, for instance, you know, JJT. So there would be a JJT, right? And then he would say, and then he would write in, what do you want to be? And he would so write, he would start out by putting the JJT in the middle. And then you say, oh, I want to be a fireman. And out of your initials, he would draw you as a fireman or as a teacher, whatever you wanted to be, boys or girls, whatever it was. Very creative. What did I, how was I influenced by that? I did my JJT as a young kid, as a little kid. I saw this and I thought that was so cool. And so I started with my JJT and I could still do it today. And this goes to show you where my, my head is, even as a young kid. I was, I was always older than, than, than I, I, I have been, at least mentally. I've always liked things of the past as well as the, as the, as the current things. But as a, as a little kid, I'm not sure why, but out of the JJT, I created the three Marx Brothers. I was able to make Harpo, Groucho, and Chico out of my JJT initials. And I, could do, I, could, I, I remember how to do it. I can still do it today. And I started to draw as a young kid, definitely influenced by Bill Jackson. And I would watch the way he drew. And, when, and, and I would always especially notice that when he started to draw one of his caricatures or one of his cartoons or one of his animated things on, on his easel, he always started, it seemed, with the nose. Maybe because that's the centering thing. I never had formal artistic training, so I don't know. My, my training was thanks to Bill Jackson. I can say that. And he always started with the nose. It was always prominent, and it centered the picture. And when I started to draw, I drew like Bill Jackson did. And many of my early drawings, original drawings, I'm sure resembled the, the style that Bill Jackson had because that's, that was my teacher. And even to this day, from starting from grammar school, I, I'm, I've always drawn and doodled. And one of my one of my great and this is this this is for most of my life. I can draw a great Fred Flintstone. If you ever see me in person, ask me to draw a Fred Flintstone for you. I'll be happy to do it. And um, and I could do it as quickly as Bill Jackson did. And I know that I began to draw Fred Flintstone and other characters. In fact, my mom, once again, bless her heart, uh, I used to draw incessantly, and she saved many, many of my drawings. I used to draw you know, things from comic books or whatever I saw around me. Mostly kind of pop. Once again, I, I love pop culture. I was always involved in pop culture, so I was drawing things from comic books like superheroes or, or Fred Flintstone, thing, you know, cartoons or Mickey Mouse or things like that. Always about you know pop culturey kind of things that were aimed at at my you know at me at, at, for my age, but I draw a great. I'm not I'm not ashamed to say it. I draw a great Fred Flintstone, and when I draw my Fred Flintstone, when I start drawing it, I begin with Fred's nose, and I know that that is because of that's the way I was taught because that's the way Bill Jackson started most of his drawings with the character's nose. And uh, this whole idea of Cartoon Town, you can go on YouTube. There's a couple of, uh, of episodes there. You get an idea of it. Uh, but, you know, Bill Jackson was very, you know, he was a wholesome, genuinely nice guy. And, you know, the funny thing about, about children's uh, television performers is that a lot of them i don't think like kids <laughs> you know in the as i said before in the early days of television there were a lot the 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 the, the, the best the, a good way to break into television if you were trying to break in was to be on a kid show because there were so many kid shows look at the comedian soupy sales Soupy Sales, if you, you may not even know who he is, those of us who are old, and even Soupy Sales was before my time. I know who he is, but 
Uh, but once again, this was a kid show. But Soupy Sales was a professional comedian. Later on, to be, became a comedian. But he started hosting a kid show. Many people started their careers. Legitimate actors who went on to win Oscars started as kid performers. If you if you ever saw the film Scrooged, for instance, with Bill Murray, you'll remember the scene. Bill Murray is the head of you know plays you know, plays the the Scrooge the, the Scroogeish character in Scrooged. But if when they do the flashbacks of his life, even though at this point he's the head of the network, a major network in the country, in that show you see that he started on a kid's television show, playing a dog. Many well-known TV personalities got their start on television playing either Bozo in different cities or on children's programming. It was a good it was where it was where there it was work because there, these were shows that were on that were being produced locally and then some nationally. So it was it was a gig, it was a way to get your foot in, and I really do believe that while some of them were were dedicated to and enjoyed performing to and for children, I think a lot of them. A lot of the, the performers on these shows um, were looking at it from a different standpoint to say, hey, uh, I need a job. So, yeah, I'll be the clown. I'll, I'll, I'll host this thing and, 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 and do something with cartoons or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much they really enjoyed performing to or performing for kids. They, I just got that vibe off of them. I used to watch, for instance, I used to watch Garfield Goose and Friends here in the Chicago area which was a cartoon show, and, and Fraser Thomas was the host, and he talked to two, a, a series of puppets and showed cartoons like Clutch Cargo and, and Diver Dan and, and, and Susie Snowflake and things like that. He had the magic screen to show the c- cartoons, but then he also interacted very much like Kukla, Fran, and Ollie. Once again, Google that. I know that for some people, uh, you know, I'm talking about some of these early kids' shows and... Uh, you know, you don't know who the heck I'm talking about because we don't see, sadly, so many of these these trailblazing shows like I'm talking about, like Soupy Sales and Captain Kangaroo, and uh, and Kukla Fran and Ali are are completely forgotten now. It's it's really sad. I think those of us who are into pop culture and 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 the history of pop culture, we know these. But sadly, I don't think the the average person today, certainly people in their 30s. If you asked who was Kukla, Fran, and Ali, they would they would look at you with a blank stare. I mean, some of these people look at you a blank stare when you talk about the Beatles. So you know, how do you know who Kukla, Fran, and Ali or Captain Kangaroo was, or Clarabelle the Clown, or Howdy Doody? But these were major, major television personalities. Major, Captain Kangaroo, Bob Keeshan. That show was on for twenty some years. Captain Kangaroo. I don't even know what it was about, really, but I used to watch him. But to get back to my point, um, and I don't know this. I, I don't know this for a fact, but I always got the vibe from Fraser Thomas, especially after he was, when, when he did Garfield Goose and Friends, he was in the studio with just the puppets and talking to the screen, talking to the kids. And I think that was fine. But then later on, after Mr. Ned, Ned Locke, retired from Bozo, they moved Frazier and Garfield Goose into Bozo Circus, and Frazier became the quote-unquote circus manager. And now Frazier was playing that role of MC in front of that cast of thousands, and he had to interact with kids on a regular basis. They were there behind him in the audience. He had to talk to them when they played the games. He had to talk to them when they played the grand prize game. And I just got the sense that Frazier did, did not really have patience for kids. I don't really know how much he really liked kids. He, he seemed very quick with them, especially during his Bozo Circus days. Now he's a little older then, too, so maybe he didn't have the, the patience. I don't know, but I just got that vibe. I used to joke about it even when I was a little kid. Like, Frazier doesn't seem to like those kids, does he? Mr. Ned did. I think Mr. Ness did. I think Bob Bell and, and Cookie. And if they didn't, they certainly were able to hide it. But I don't know if Frazier... I think Frazier was probably a frustrated actor. I think Frazier Thomas, and I. And once again, he had a very long and, uh, and 
you know, noteworthy career here. But I think probably Frazier probably had some may. I, once, I, I know nothing about this. This is purely conjecture based on my observations of watching him for decades. But I, I, I have the sense that Frazier may have wanted to become more of an actor or a performer. And he found this, this, this kid's television niche and it offered security and a good paycheck and he stayed with it. But I don't know how much he really bonded with the children or was genuinely interested in entertaining them. I think it was a job. It felt, at least that's the way it came off to me. Now, I give Ray Rayner a lot of, of credit. Ray Rayner was another one. A, a hugely successful morning show. Uh, showed cartoons and did do-it-yourself projects and had a, a duck. I mean, it was... It was <laughs> would come and visit him, Chelveston, right? And then he would go to, uh, you know, Lincoln Park Zoo and uh, with Lester Fisher and, of course, Chauncey, who did all the do-it-yourself projects, and they showed the cartoons, and he, and he, you know, did the weather and the sports and told you where the snow, you know, snow reports if your school is closed. He was kind of like a kid's version of Good, of good Morning America or the, or the Today Show. That's exactly what it was. I'm sure that's what they said the concept was. It was a Today Show or a Good Morning America show for kids. And so that's why they had, instead of tips on how to lose weight or holistic uh, health tips or cooking tips or the new fashions like those morning shows, they showed cartoons and had a duck that ate lettuce and did do-it-yourself projects. <laughs> but I, but I give I give Ray Rayner some credit because Ray Rayner started as well on Bozo Circus as Oliver Oliver as a clown, and then he got his own show and he didn't want to keep doing both shows, so then he left Bozo Circus. But Ray Rayner, I believe, wanted had higher aspirations. Ray Rayner was an actor. Ray Rayner, while he was doing his show, would frequently appear at different theaters around the Chicago area as an actor in the odd couple. I know he played, I think I may have even seen him one time in a production of the odd couple. There's a lot of, you know, there's always been a lot of theater, you know, theaters here in Chicago, big and small, especially in the sixties and seventies. There was, there was some major theaters that had, that were, they're not really big, but they had huge followings and they were very well known. And Ray Rayner would appear completely as an actor and when ray rayner quit he quit his show here he became a weatherman so i think ray rayner while he did a very good job of entertaining i also think that that was kind of like well hey it's a good job i'm not saying that ray rayner didn't like kids but he didn't perform in front of kids he performed in a studio he talked to us over the air, but he was not in front of an audience of children. And so I think that Ray Rayner uh, probably, uh, and I'm, this is not a knock, I think he was like, hey, this is a pretty good gig. In many ways, Ray was entertaining the kids but talking to their parents too. That show was working on several levels as well, and he would always make the people in the, you know, he would always tell some little, make some little ad-libs and make the people in the studio crack up uh, and on inside jokes and stuff. When, when we as kids, they went right over our heads. But Bill Jackson, who, as I said before, passed away last week at the age of 86, I really believe that Bill Jackson liked kids. It came through the television. On the TV show, once again, he, he was not in front of an audience, although he did do live shows and brought his puppets to life. Both physically, the puppets were there, and then they would actually made made uh, puppets where where the people would dress and have their big heads on. So the like Mother Plumtree and, and Dirty Dragon would walk around. They weren't just puppets; they would actually walk when you saw them live. I saw them perform one of their shows at the Will Rogers Movie Theater in the Belmont Central area because that's where I grew up in the northwest side of Chicago. And I remember, and wow, was it was it crazy to see Dirty Dragon with legs and feet? Because on TV, all we saw, obviously, was the head and the torso of the puppet. But here was, was full length. 
Dirty Dragon was huge. So was so was um, Mother Plumtree and the old professor and weird. It was wild. But I really, Bill Jackson's um, genuine, um, genial manner, and I believe his 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 legitimate um, passion to want to connect with and entertain children was there. I don't know how many, I mean, for instance, we're talking about famous people like Willard Scott, right? Willard Scott, who just recently passed away, was the weatherman for decades on the Today Show. He was a bozo. No pun intended. No, no. <laughs> no he played bozo in, 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 in another market. He played, he was a bozo in another city, as I said before, because bozos were all, they had bozo shows all around the country, original shows. So Willard Scott wasn't a clown by profession. Willard Scott was a performer by profession who got a job as bozo. And then after that, he was like, okay, I'm done to being bozo. What now I want to be, I want to, and he became a weatherman. I mean, he was a quasi weatherman. He was, he was, you know, he was an entertainer. He would do the weather that was basically, you know, whatever he taught. I don't even know if he was a meteorologist to be. He certainly wasn't a top skilling. But, you know, he read the weather and he pointed to the map. But, you know, then he became the guy that would celebrate all the octogenarians and 100-year-old people. He became a personality. He was a performer. He was an actor. He was probably a frustrated, you know, serious Macbeth actor. So I don't think he was a child uh, he wanted to be a, an entertainer to entertain children, but I really believe that Bill Jackson enjoyed that, and I, that came through, and I think that's why I connected with him, because when he spoke to you, to that camera, to us at home, it, it felt real. It felt genuine. He made a connection with you, and then he populated this cartoon town and Giggle Start Hotel and these other shows with these, with these uh, very... Um, distinct and original puppets that he created, and he gave them these personalities. And at one point, he created these little serials. You almost had, you had to watch the show every day to see the the new um, the new installment. There was the Lemon Joke Kid, and then there was a Frankenstein kind of a um, of a of a of an ongoing serial. The, the creativity that this guy had was amazing. I mean, every day he was sitting there and, and doing all these puppets. And as I said before, molding blob into something and drawing. And I mean, it was, there was, it was, it was just creativity on display throughout the entire show. And it was basically this one guy. And then they would do these little serials of, you know, like I said, Lemon Joe Kid was like, a, you know, tune in tomorrow with the Lemon Joe Kid. So then he was writing these little, these long kind of elongated stories, serial type stories. My gosh, I never tired of him. Even when I got older and then he did the Giggle Snort Hotel, which he basically brought all of his, his cartoon town puppets and, and, and put them in a, cart, in, a, in, a, in a hotel setting. And then he was the manager of the hotel and all of his puppets and all his characters he had created in the past, as well as some new ones, all lived in the hotel. And, you know, mayhem, uh, madcap uh, situations ensued. I was now in my, as a, I was still, now I was out of, I was not a little kid anymore in the 80s. I was a teenager. But I would still watch Giggle Snort Hotel. Because I just, I liked Bill Jackson. And the show was corny and it was whatever. But I grew up with Bill Jackson and I followed Bill Jackson. And then finally he left Chicago and went to California and became a teacher. So once again, I believe his passion to help young people and share his talent was legit because that's what he did later on when he, when he left the, the Chicago area and left television. He was still entertaining, but he was teaching. So there was a guy that was really, you could tell, was doing exactly what he loved doing. And, and that self-satisfaction came through as well. That was another thing that, 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 that inspired me to say you, you really have to follow your dreams or you have to do what you're passionate about. I remember watching Bill Jackson saying, here's a guy who's doing exactly what, he's, what he wants to do and what he should be doing, what he was meant to do. 
and I had great respect for him um, for, like I said before, the talent that he had, the creativity that he had, and the, and the influence he had on me. And then, of course, he like many of these people, like Bob Bell and Ray Rayner, they, they retire and they go away and you forget about them. You don't see them every day. But when their names come up, you get instant flashes of memories. And I could close my eyes right now, and there are some episodes, or I could, I could picture all of his characters. I could picture specific moments. He even had a box that would talk, that would have sound effects coming out that sat on his desk. That was very cool. It was very similar to, like, remember the Adams Family with Thing? Remember Thing came out of that box with the hand? Well, he had a box that would open and talk and make a lot of sound effects. Wouldn't necessarily talk, but he had a lot of sound effects. And he had his own little desk, and then he would walk over to the post office and talk to Dirty Dragon. And what's so cool about Dirty Dragon, the puppet Dirty Dragon, his foil, his comic foil, was that not only was he a puppet, but he was a dragon who breathed fire. So how creative was that? That Sometimes if you go back and watch some of these episodes of BJ and Dirty Dragon, there was smoke everywhere because I don't know how they did it, but the smoke would come out of the out of Dirty Dragon's two nostrils. And sometimes the whole set was filled with... And he would go, fire on it. <laughs> oh. I was so happy about 10 years or so ago. Well, actually, I should, I should say going back even farther maybe 30 years ago, when the Museum of Broadcast Communications opened here in Chicago, when it first opened, uh, I was very excited because one of the things they were touting was that they were going to celebrate so much of Chicago's, even though it's a, it's a national broadcast museum, a lot of it since it's here in Chicago, and Chicago did have such a vibrant and creative um, television, local television, locally produced television history, a lot of what's in there, naturally, is Chicago-based, which has been a, a both an advantage and a disadvantage for the Museum of Broadcast Communications because, uh, you know, a lot of people who come from out of town, they, they don't know BJ and Dirty Dragon, for example, or they don't know a lot of these shows that were locally produced. These shows were only in each town. It wasn't like it is today. I know that's hard to understand because now almost everything is national. There's very few local, local shows that are, you know, even, even local TV stations are national. Like WGN, Channel 9, and many of the, 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 the local stations like WPIX, you can see, I, I, you know, are, are on your cable station. So even though they're locally and, and uh, tailored to the town that they are originating from and serving, you can also see them nationally. But that was not the case 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. So a lot of times people will come from out of town, go to the, the Museum of, 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 uh, of Broadcast Communications, and you know they'll see all these Chicago-based kind of things and go, I don't get it. So it's, it's been kind of a push and pull for that. But, if you were, but, but for a Chicago pop culture television fan... Uh, the the Museum of Broadcast Communications, especially when it started, was a treasure trove. They had all this memorabilia from all these shows, from Ray Rayner and Bozo and Garfield Goose and all the puppets. And for me, while there was Garfield Goose, and it was cool and it was great to see the grand prize game and the Bozo drum and Bozo's outfits and Mr. Ned's outfits and Ray Rayner's jumpsuits and all that stuff, when I first went to the, broad, the Museum of Broadcast Communications back in the 80s, in the late 80s, mid-late 80s, early 90s, when I first went there, when it first opened, I was enthralled to see the BJ and Dirty Dragon Bill Jackson puppets in person. Yes, it was cool to see Garfield Goose. Yes, it was cool to see Romberg Rabbit. Yes, I'll give you that. But as I said before, it was from my standpoint, it was much cooler to see Dirty Dragon and Weird and Mother Plumtree and Old Professor from Bill Jackson's imagination and his TV shows. 
and I'll, I never, I never forget when the first time I saw them. I, it was, it was, it was such a thrill, and it, and it just brought back so many memories, and still does today. And I've got some magazines, I've got some DVDs that that show episodes. I've always been. It's always just been, I've, you know, I'm not saying I watch these every day. I'm not going to say that, but there's always a soft spot in my heart whenever someone talks about or if I see any footage of or have any remembering, memories of BJ and Dirty Dragon, oh, they just come flooding back. And I'm so happy that about 10 years or so ago, there was a special event that was held not far from where I live that celebrated Bill Jackson. And this is about 10 or so years ago. So he was still in, in fairly good health. He, you know, he was in his, in his 70s now. He looked different. He was bald. You know, he used to have these big 70s sideburns. He was kind of a hip nerd <laughs> back in the 70s. He was, he, was, he was a real, he was a square ball, but he did have the big mutton chop sideburns and the derby. So he looked, he was kind of a mix of, of, of cool and nerds all at the same time. But here he was, an older gentleman, but he still came across uh, so genuine, so appreciative. And when we walked into this movie theater, there were all the puppets on on pedestals on the stage. And oh my gosh, oh, the the emotion, the nostalgia, the life memories, the childhood memories just came flooding back. And when he was announced... And came out. The theater was filled, first of all. So you know the impact that Bill Jackson and BJ and Dirty Dragon not only had on me, but obviously on several hundred people, if not more, obviously. But ones who actually took time out of their weekend day to come and see him. So it was a packed house. And when he came out, he got a standing ovation that was just kept going and going. And when he walked out, I just started crying. It was that much of a emotional connection when I saw this guy in person and it just came flooding back. And I, I've told this story before. Another, if you had to ask me about my two major, you know, kind of idols. When I was a little kid, now obviously when and, I, and obviously you know my nickname is Elton John, right, or Elton Jim. So, uh, and I was nine years old when I became an Elton John fan. But even earlier than that, from six and seven and eight, I was watching Tony Esposito on the Blackhawks, and I was watching B.J. and Dirty Dragon and Bill Jackson, and I would have to say. That between, from when I have my earliest memories, before Elton, because then when Elton came by, everything changed, right? <laughs> but before Elton, um, there was Tony Esposito and Bill Jackson. And and as I told you, when they did a Tony Esposito night in, in 2008, and they brought him back as a team ambassador, when he came out and he put that mask on, I mean, I started crying. And as I've told the story, I have I was lucky enough then in later year, in, in years after that to have actually met Tony Esposito and become something of an acquaintance or even a quote-unquote friend. And uh, and that was the ultimate for me. And uh, and as I said on this podcast, uh, I was very saddened when he passed away uh, in August of uh, of last year. I really felt uh, a, a, a real genuine sadness and grief, and still do, and still can tear up when I talk about Tony. And I felt the same way. When I saw Bill Jackson in person, when he stepped out, it was that same rush of emotion. And I, and I had no problems crying in public because there was a lot of other people around me doing the same thing. <laughs> and he was so kind and genial and sharing and appreciative. 
He couldn't believe the evo- the emotion or the emotion the ovation he was getting. I, I think he, he was really shocked. I don't even know if he knew because, as I said to you before, you know, he was speaking to an uh, to a to a to a studio. You know, he didn't have an audience. He was just speaking to a camera. Now he did live performances, so he could get a sense in his heyday the the reaction. But I don't think he th- would have thought thirty or forty years later that people would have still had this connection to him. But we did. And I have to tell you, when um, I, got, I went up to him and spoke to him for a while, and um, he was so nice and so, so still so talented that I said, you know, one of my the favorite things I used to do was, you know, you, when, when people would send you your, their, um, their initials, you would draw, and I told him my whole story about drawing the mark, blah blah blah, and he was laughing, and 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 I, so I had a piece of paper and a marker, and I wrote JJT, and I gave him the marker, and I said, "Can you make me a radio personality?" That's what I've always wanted to be, and and that's what I am. I was at WGN at the time. I said, you know, and um, and he and he right on the spot he made. Me, uh, you know, with a microphone and WGN, and he he did a drawing of me out of my initials on the spot, which I still have, and it is a cherished memento. So I was very saddened last week when I saw the news that Bill Jackson had passed away because um, on the heels of Tony Esposito, another childhood idol of mine just passing away, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, the longer we live, the longer we lose those who we love, who had an impact and an influence on our lives. And Tony Esposito definitely had an impact and an influence on my life, and Bill Jackson definitely had an impact and an influence on my life, too. And so I'm very sad to, to hear of his passing, uh, but his memory... And the work he did and the joy he brought me will always stay with me. And I will always enjoy watching reruns of BJ and Dirty Dragon. And every time I draw a Fred Flintstone or every time I do a blob, or... Whenever I see a, a little derby, <laughs> or whenever I say "fire" on it, I will always think of B.J. and Dirty Dragon and Bill Jackson, who deserves to be his name deserves to be among those with equal stature of Bob Bell and Ray Rayner and Fraser Thomas and Floyd Brown and other local Chicago television, children's television um, personalities, and legends. Bill Jackson deserves to be right there, right next to them. And so I just want to say thank you, Bill Jackson, for sharing your talents, for sharing your enthusiasm, for informing me, for entertaining me, and for teaching me, and for being my TV friend my TV companion. And uh, flags are at half staff right now in Cartoon Town, and Dirty Dragon has a postal holiday to celebrate the life, the talent, and the memories of Bill Jackson. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Don't forget, every Monday a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. Don't forget to tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion is much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 296. I'm Jim Toronto. I ain't here on business. I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic from the end of the web to your screen.